early in the spring when we round up the dogie. We mark them and brand them and bob off their tails. Round up the horses, load up the chuck wagon, then send the dogies out on the long trail. We'll be Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, if you're just joining us this in this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing in every episode, around 100 pages. I use the Library of America as my main source material. And currently, we are beginning a series on American women writers from the 20th century. And the first author we're taking a look at is Willa Cather. And um, uh, in the previous episode, I looked at the first half of a nice little novel she wrote in, or she published in 1925 called The Professor's House. And now I'm going to finish up my thoughts about that novel. Now, just to recap a little bit, uh, this, uh, this novel is a, um, it, it's kind of, it's the story of a young man named Tom Outland and his adventures before he went off to college, meeting the titular professor. And that, that story, that, that relative, it's pretty much just a short story, um, you know, about seven chapters or so in, in a larger novel, only about 40 pages. But it's encircled by the story of, of this professor. He's in his 50s, he's just finished his eight-volume magnum opus, kind of the, the pinnacle of his career, his study of Spanish exploration in, in North America. He's win, won a major prize. His daughters have been married off. He's trying to come to terms with what to do with his life as he ages and as he's getting older, right? And, and he's kind of achieved all these, these things that an academic man is supposed to achieve. And he's kind of aimless. Making this worse is the fact that Tom Altland, this young man who he befriended and ended up loving and actually became a loved member of the family almost, died in World War One, And so he was kind of the son-in-law that should have been. And he's been surrounded by these other two son-in-laws who aren't horrible people. One is a little bit more materialist. The other is a little bit more quasi-intellectual. He's a journalist. He, he's he's got he's got an appreciation for what the professor does, but neither of them match Tom Oatland in his memory and, and really in the memory of the family. So, the first half of the novel, actually more than the first half of the novel, is called um, I think it's called the family. Yeah, the, the section is called the family, and it deals with these these tensions and these different things surrounding. Um, his life and I talk about that and there's a lot of great stuff there about academic culture and, and this the tension between academia for academia's sake or whether academia is best as a job training program or or, or to be more essentially commercialized that's all in there these are still issues being dealt with so I think the novel is worth looking at for, for some of those themes um, but it's really when we get to the second part of the book called Tom Outland's Story that we really see the larger tensions at work in this story. And I think there's a lot of contrast here, and these are things we're going to come back to as we look at this part of the novel. One contrast, of course, is the old versus the young. Much of the novel, we're in the head of this old professor. In fact, as you'll see in part three, he thinks he's going to die soon. He's basically waiting to die. So we kind of got this man in a midlife crisis. But that's contrasted in this part, Tom Altman's story, with a very, very young man, a man who worked on the railroads, who, who eventually goes to college, but there's this kind of period in his life before he went to college that's the focus of the story. But it's a story of exploration, of adventure, of, of discovery. 
Um, these are things that the professor does in his life as a scholar, but he's kind of he's at the end of that stage in his life. So the contrast between old versus young is here. The contrast between being static and going on adventures there too. The professor is kind of looking forward. I wouldn't say maybe not looking forward, but at least in his future, he sees a life of, of stagnation, of, of just kind of just courses of students. At one point, he even says he stops bothering to learn the names of his students because he doesn't really care anymore. There's really no future for him. He's never going to do a great, a great work as what he did um, previously. And this is contrasted with a young man who goes on what's really a kind of amazing adventure. Um, the same thing, we got a conflict between idealism versus reality. And here's where it gets kind of complex because the professor, he really does think there's some kind of human spirit that goes beyond the material. He, there's a, a section in part one where he gives a long, we were privy to a lecture he's given to the students. And part of that lecture is him saying, what matters is not the technology. What matters is not, uh, that's not where the human spirit is. The, we're not just products of our technology. We're something beyond that. Technology may make our life easier, but it doesn't really change who we are fundamentally, right? So this idea that there's kind of a, some kind of human spirit out there, you know, is a tension throughout the whole novel. And it really comes to the head in the story of, of Tom Altland because he really does, he discovers something great and grand, but he confronts the forces of institutions, of entrenched power, of the bourgeoisie, of, of the capitalist class that all frustrate the, the, the full exploration and full ex revelation of what he's, he's found. In the same way, I guess I already sort of said this, but the stagnation versus discovery, that's there too. And and the fact that the professor, he is an explorer in his own way, not maybe not as active, but you know, he's as Tom Altland is, in this part of the story anyways, he is an ex he is an explorer. He studies exploration. He studies you know, explorers, and he discovers new things about them through historical research, right? So there's something kind of engaging and active about that. Right. So these tensions are at work throughout the second half of the novel. And I think even though the story kind of stands up just as a story of an aging professor who's kind of adrift in his life, once you add Tom Altland's story and the, the, the essentially what's an epilogue to the novel, the final five chapters, which return to the professor's mindset, this really becomes a, a masterpiece, a really great novel. So anyways, this Tom Altland story, I want to kind of go through what is in this this part of, of the novel. Again, it's a story within a story, and it's a flashback. It's a flashback to, you know, essentially Tom Altland came to meet the professor while he's in college. He, and he continues education, partially under the professor, and later on he goes into science and he goes into physics and gets he invents something that makes him rich, but he dies in the war. Right? That's the story. Now, when he first met the professor, he brought with him some trinkets from Native Americans from the Southwest, right? And this was something that was that he brought with him as kind of a gift, something he that was very dear to him. And this story is partially about how he gets that, but it's much more than that. It's a story of of why he didn't go to college immediately, why he was going back to college at such a, an older age, you know, comparatively to other college students. And anyways, I'll, I'll just get into this. I'll, I'll just jump into the story. So Tom Allen's story begins with him working in the rails, which is something he did in his youth. He worked in the various rail cars. Um, and while he meets a man named Rodney Blake, who's just referred to as Blake throughout the story, he's an older man. 
he's kind of the same way that the professor's looking for a son and a son-in-law. He had two daughters. Blake's kind of looking for a younger brother, maybe. Tom Altman's looking for an older brother, and they kind of match together quite well. He meets him at a poker game at the rail, rail cards, uh, or at the rail cars, you know, in their downtime. He, like, Robert, Rodney Blake, like, he doesn't really understand the customs and the etiquette of this world. He kind of breaks some social full pause. One is he kind of cleans out everyone else in a poker game, taking back like 1600 bucks. So Tom Altman goes and follows him and helps him and makes sure he's not robbed and all this style of stuff. And later on, they, they basically become friends and brothers. Now, Tom Altman gets a bit of a pneumonia and he can't really work. So they then decide after he recovers from the amount of pneumonia that they're going to become cow punchers. He's going, they're going to work yeah, on, a, on a cattle, cattle run. Um, and so right away, chapter two jumps into this job as, as cow punchers. And their, their real job is they're like the winter uh, stewards of this cattle herd, right? So they're not going to travel around. It's, it's, they're just going to be in one place during the winter before, and then they're going to fatten them up or whatever. And then I guess in the, in the spring, move them to the slaughterhouses or whatever, you know, wherever they go. And they're, they, there's a, they're at a winter cabin that's out in the southwest somewhere in New Mexico. And they, they're near a mesa. Mesa is one of those kind of plateaus. You can look it up. Um, uh, that actually is important for this kind of geography of the southwest. is important not only in this novel, but the novel that follows uh, Death Comes to the Archbishop. Um, so they're nearby a mesa. Now, interesting, the mesa has sort of a story for the cowpunchers. It's kind of almost legendary in that it's, it's seen as kind of dangerous and, and, and also kind of a threat because cows will occasionally run away to the mesa and, and be, kind of become, become wild cows. And there's kind of a herd of wild cows there that no one has really been able to reclaim. And so it's kind of a threat to the herd. And part of their job is to, is to watch these. So it's like one watches during the day, the other watches at night, and they just make sure the herd is intact throughout the winter. That, that's the job. Um, Tom Altland, while just kind of living there over the over the winter, discovers some clues that a civilization nearby, like he sees like an irrigation ditch, other kind of archaeological realm remnants that suggest that yes, there maybe was some people living here before. So um, in chapter three, we're introduced to a man named Henry Atkins. He arrives, and he's like the cook. Um, he's like kind of an old, rather naive, rather idealistic person yeah he, he actually reminds me a bit of the professor in some ways the professor is not quite so naive but he's kind of like the older um foil to tom altland in a way and in this part of the story he performs that um outland even though he's warned by his boss essentially don't go into the mesa because if you break your arm or you break your leg or something else you know that's gonna like mess us up you know you're not gonna be able to finish your job we're going to lose cattle. It's going to be costly. So you, you know, your own safety is paramount because of her bottom line is paramount. Um, but still, he starts to explore the area. And, you know, he starts to go farther and farther into the mesa to seek out um, the civilization. And he uses an excuse at one point when some cattle uh, kind of escape into the mesa. He's going to go find them. And while he's doing that, he, he's, he's able to learn more about this civilization that lives there or that lived there at one point. And he starts to call this place the Cliff City. This is reference, his name for this, this civilization that once existed there.
Well, now that it's really clear that there's something there worth looking at, Blake and Outland agree to explore this after their job's done. So they're going to wait till after they're done with the cattle. When the winter ends, they're going to go explore it on their own time using their earnings from the, from the job, right? Um, so chapter four, really, we, we see the beginning of their job ends and we see the beginning of their exploration of the Mesa and the Cliff City. They actually hire some people to build a cabin, uh, to build some roads into the Mesa. And they start to just do become amateur archaeologists. It's really kind of amazing how they just start digging up stuff. Um, Altland starts to keep a journal, a diary of what he's finding. And this is something that the professor later on wants to edit um, for, for posterity. Um, and he learns more about just how advanced this cliff-dwelling society is. Altland becomes a scholar. And even though up to this point in his life, he's never had that chance to be a scholar. You know, he was working on the rails, a poor boy, cowpuncher. He finds out he has the aptitude for scholarship in the way he's able to meticulously document what he f finds here, his awe, his ability to interpret what he's seen. He really does appear to have a scholar's mind. And there is kind of an interesting parallel between the professor's house with its special room where he does his, his research and his writing and the Mesa. The Mesa sort of becomes the equivalent for Tom Outland of the professor's study. It's his study. It's a place for him to have his great findings. And uh, I think Willa Cather here is really very um, directly trying to contrast these things. Obviously, the professor's writing on the Southwest, right? And Outland made a discovery in the Southwest. So he is the subject of the professor's own kind of research of, uh, you know, the history of discovery. Not Spanish, but at one point he does learn Spanish or he starts to try to learn Spanish. So by this point, it's like a little gang that's exploring this. It's, it's um, Blake, it's Outland, and even Atkins shows up to, to help them with that. It's in chapter five that Atkins is killed by a snake bite. Um, and he's kind of too naive. I think that's the symbolism here is he's too naive to really live the life as an explorer. So... I don't know, I, I'm thinking about a comparison between Atkins and the professor in a way, in that they can only kind of observe exploitation, they can't really at the end of the day be part of it. Now they invite a, a, a priest to come up to basically perform last rites for this Atkins guy. And while he's there, he sees the Mesa, sees the Cliff City, and he begins to encourage Tom to go to the Smithsonian. And basically says that this has to be explored professionally by by academics, by archaeologists, by, you know, and the Smithsonian, they do these kind of expeditions and, you, you know, you, this needs to be revealed um, professionally. Nevertheless, he also is kind of an amateur archaeologist, just like Altland, um, in that he kind of does his own interpretation of, of the region. And it's quite fascinating. So let me dig it up and, and read it for you, a little bit of it. This is that priest, quote, The tower you so much admire in the Cliff Village may have been a watchtower, as you think, but from the curious place in those narrow slits like windows, I believe it was used for astronomical observations. I'm inclined to think that your tribe were a superior people. Perhaps they were not so when they first came upon this mesa, but in an orderly and secure life, they developed considerably the arts of peace. There's evidence on one hand that they lived for something more than food and shelter. They had an appreciation of comfort and went even further than that. Their life, compared to that of our roving Navajos, must have been quite complex. 
This is unquestionably a distinct feeling for design in what you might call Cliff City. Buildings are not grouped like that by pure accident, though convenience probably had much to do with it. Convenience often dictates very sound design. I see your tribe as a provident, rather thoughtful people who made their livelihood secure by raising crops and fowl. The great number of turkey bones and feathers are evidence that they domesticated the wild turkey. With grain in their storerooms, the mountain sheep and deer and their quarry, they rose gradually from the condition of savagery. With the proper variation of meat and vegetable diets, they developed physically and improved in the primitive arts. End quote. And there's nothing really special about this, except at one point he does interpret some dead mummies, like some mummies is being punished for adultery, kind of imposing maybe a more Catholic worldview on him. But I think we've got a really hopeful story here of, of amateur archaeology, of people exposed to something new, coming to terms with it without the burden of academia, right? And, you know, the fact that so much of the open first part of the novel is about the culture of academia and how it was becoming decadent and, and commercialized and, 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 and a bit vulgar, actually, from the professor's point of view, even though the professor's formally trained, there's still this, I think Willa Cather's grasping for the spirit of curiosity and exploration in academia. And she's finding it here in these characters who are essentially just people who ran into this place and can see with their own two eyes what's around them and start to interpret it. And I think that's really a fascinating aspect of this for me. You know, a Catholic armchair interpretation of an ancient Native American civilization. So praise for the amateurs, I think, or at least I hope that's what she's doing. So anyways, uh, in chapter six, we, it's, it's the longest chapter in this section. Outland takes this priest's advice and says, okay, let's go to Washington. Let's, you know, talk to the Smithsonian. Let's get them to send an expedition over. Let's preserve this. And they, they get money. I think he gets $600 together to fund this, this trip. He ends up spending months in Washington. So he gets to explore Washington the same way he got to explore the Mesa. And I, I think, again, Willa Cather is, is carrying on with the theme of exploration. But here, the exploration is of something really gross, something decadent, something fallen, something without, without hope. This is a story of failure, after all. Um, and what he finds here is not only people who don't really understand and appreciate what he's found, he finds academics and bureaucrats looking for personal recognition, looking for their own benefit. He finds essentially bureaucrats that are very often very petty. They're, they're chasing money and everything's about funding, right? Nothing's about the real spirit of what he found. So it's a very, very long story. I think it's about 15 pages, but it's just about the constant frustrations he's getting in trying to get the Smithsonian to mount an expedition. And eventually, the, there's no funding for the Smithsonian for new expeditions, and he has to leave without anyone um, you know, supporting that. He tells this all to Blake. So Blake's privy to all this through like telegraphs and through communications. And so when he gets back to the Mesa, a failure, he learns that Blake had sold the artifacts essentially to a German collector for $4,000. Blake basically decides to cut his losses. And this leads to the breakup between Blake and Outland over this. Uh, in Blake's point of view, it's like, we're not going to get anything. It's not that he's materialistic about it. I mean, there's a, maybe a hint of that, but largely he just says, we're not going to, you know, we need to be paid somewhat for our investment and our time. He wasn't looking to get rich necessarily, but he needed some kind of something to show for it. And if he wasn't going to get it through an expedition, he'd have to get it somehow. 
But from Outland's point of view, this is something, the Mesa more than ever is something that America needs. He's seen America, he's seen the heart of it. He's seen Washington and he sees corruption and pettiness and he just sees the grossness of it. And he decides at this point that the Mesa needed to be, and its artifacts needed to be something that almost revives America. I think there's a you know, so much of Willa Cather's writing is about the frontier and the death of the frontier and its replacement with kind of a, a corrupting capitalist pettiness, bureaucracy, and all, all the other ugliness. Now, all of her novels kind of play with this in various ways. And, and what he says is, this is something really America needs. And let me quote you on that. It's on page 247 of the Library of America version. Outland's, this is, well, this is all from Outland's point of view. So, quote, I admitted I'd hope we've been paid for our work, but maybe get a bonus of some kind for a discovery. And then this is what he says to Blake. But I never thought of selling them because they weren't mine to sell nor yours. They belong to this country, to the state, and to all the people. They belong to boys like you and me who have no other ancestors to inherit from. You've gone and sold them to a country that's got plenty of relics of its own. You've gone and sold your country's secrets like Dreyfus. And this is like a sensitive point because uh, Blake Blake was a bit of a leftist, a bit of a socialist, a supporter of, of Dreyfus and the Dreyfus affair at the time. So um, anyways, that's um, Outland's uh, breakup with Blake over this. Um, essentially, he's I think he's saying that America needs Cliff City to save it from Washington or what Washington's become. So as the story ends in Chapter 7, Blake leaves. Uh, Outland just studies Latin and, and Spanish in the Mesa. And eventually he returns to work in the railroad. And we know from the later, from the early part of the story, he eventually goes to college, becomes a physicist, makes a major discovery there, patents something that gets him rich, and then dies in World War I. The Mesa, though, and the professor's office are kind of an interesting contrast. But I think the contrast I mentioned before between the old and the young, between the static and the adventure, between idealism and reality are here throughout this whole section, especially between Washington and the Mesa, but also I think between the professor and Outland. And, you know, of course, there's different stages in their life too, right? It's, uh, people, people aren't just one thing in their life, right? They change, right? The professor had his glorious time, but it's just over. And that's what part three, which is the, sh the shortest section in the book, it's only five short chapters. It's called The Professor, and it's pretty much all the internal musings of the professor as he's looking to the end of his life. And as I established in the previous episode, it's not that he's dead. It's not that he's dying as much. Is that he doesn't see a future for himself beyond what he's already accomplished. Again, he's, he's got, he had the marriage, the kids, married the kids off. He had his career, a good career but he's kind of achieved his academic research. He's won the great prize. He's respected in the faculty. He, he's done all those things. He's even bought a new house, so he's upgraded his starter house to a, to a larger place. And it's just like, well, what now? What do now is his problem. Um, and so we get five little short chapters dealing with his internal musings. Now, the context for this, if you didn't listen to my first episode, the context for this is his family went off to Paris leaving him behind because he didn't want to go. And so he's basically home alone while his family's in Paris. 
and he decides he's going to edit Outland's journal, diary, the one he made when he was exploring the Mesa for posterity. He wanted to write an introduction to it. And he thinks long and hard on it. It ends up taking him weeks and weeks to accomplish what would have been like a one-day job to just write a brief bio biographical introduction. He never really does it because he's so dwelling so much on this Outland story and on his own life. Right. And one thing we learned, especially in chapter one of this section called The Professor, is that Outland gave the professor the spirit to write an exploration, or at least to write it in new ways. He had already written a few volumes, but he was, it was kind of it was kind of dragging. And Outland, by coming into his life, revived the spirit of 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 exploration in his own way, in his historical research. Right. And he also starts to think about Outland in terms of Outland avoided the fate that I'm facing. He's avoided old age. There's something almost uh, positive about his death in the war in that he, he died while he was still active. He, he never reached that stage of, of stagnation. Here's how Willa Cather writes it. But suppose Tom had been more prudent and had not gone away with his old, with his old teacher. St. Peter sometimes wondered what would happen to him once the trap of worldly success had been sprung on him. He couldn't see Tom building Outland or becoming a public-spirited citizen of Hamilton. What change would have come in his blue eyes, in his fine, long hand with the back-springing thumb, which had never handled things that were not symbols of ideas? A hand like that, had he lived, must have been put to other uses. His fellow scientists, his wife, his town, the state would have required many duties of it. It would have, it would have had to had to write. It would have had to write thousands of useless letters, frame thousands of false excuses. It would have had to manage a great deal of money into being instrument of a woman who would grow always more exacting. He had escaped all that. He had made something new in the world, and the rewards, the meaningless conventional gestures, he had left to others. And that's how chapter one ends. Um, in chapter two, we, we get much more than him thinking about his youth, the professor thinking about his own youth, and we, we hear about his own kind of frontier background. Something that Willow Cather can never quite get away from is thinking about the frontier, right? Her early novels were about the frontier, that, the changing frontier she was living in, right? And, you know, at first when I was reading these novels, I thought these don't seem to be like her earlier novels, like Old Pioneers and my Antonia, they seem to be different, but in many ways, the frontier never goes away. It's, it's here in this novel, in memory, and in the Mesa, and in the next novel, we're going to look at Death Comes for the Archbishop. It's there, too. It's kind of always there, in fact. I was, I was wrong about that, I think. Um, but he thinks about his youth, but he sees the end of his life and the end of his creativity, and they're really joined together. He just doesn't really have an idea to plan forward, right? How do you put one one step forward when you've already accomplished everything? This is like classical midlife crisis stuff. This isn't the language, of course, Willa Cather uses. But he just sees something passing. Quote, what he had not known was that at a given time, the first nature could return to a man unchanged by all the pursuits and passions and experiences of life, untouched even by the tastes and intellectual activities, which had been strong enough to give him distinction among his fellows and to have made it for him, as they say, a name in the world. Perhaps this reversion did not often occur, but he knew it had happened to him and he suspected it had happened to his grandfather. He did not regret his life, but he was indifferent to it. It seemed to him like the life of another person. So that's a bit of his, his struggle. He also seems to very much think he's dying and, and he's worried that he's dying or maybe not worried, just expecting his death to come. 
in chapter three, he goes to the doctor and the doctor says he's, he's essentially okay. There's nothing physically wrong with him. He's maybe just a little bit depressed or so. That seems to be partially what's going on here. Um, and he, he decides, this is all in chapter three, he decides that if he's going to live, he's going to maybe at least take a, be an explorer, at least go somewhere. And the place he would go, obviously, would have to be, the place he would go would be Altland's Mesa, right? In chapter four, the professor starts school, so the new academic year begins. He learns that Rosamund is pregnant, his daughter, so another kind of uh, check mark on the box of life. Um, but he still thinks he's dying, and he kind of goes into into the new semester half-heartedly. He doesn't really try to learn people's names. He just kind of delivers his lectures in a in a standard way, not really thinking about too much about the future. He starts to also dwell more and more in the study. He stays in his study in his old house rather than living in the, the new house that his winnings of the academic prize helped him build. And he actually very, I think, radically here, he, he ponders a very important philosophical question, which is uh, really the right to die or, or in contrast, and I think the way it's approached more in the book here is does one have a duty to live? Right. And he, he's basically comes to the conclusion that, yes, someone has a duty to live. It's, it's not so much about the right to die or not. It's like, does one have an obligation to continue living? Willa Cather writes, quote, when St. Peter at last woke, the room was pitch black and full of gas. He was cold and numb, felt sick and rather dazed. The long anticipated coincidence had happened, he realized. The storm had blown the stove out and the window shut. The thing to do is to get up and open the window. But suppose he did not get up. How far was a man required to exert himself against accident? How would such a case be decided under English law? He hadn't lifted his hand against himself. Was he required to lift it for himself? End quote. So not die by one's own hand, but just allow oneself to die by accident, by not caring for oneself, right? And of course, people do this all the time, right? They maybe let themselves get overweight or they drink too much or smoke. There's some inaction. They basically set themselves up to, to, to die. And the morality of that's actually pondered. Here. Now, in the end of the day, the professor chooses to live, and that's the climax of the novel. And in chapter five, that's what we learn. Um, he he doesn't really reconnect to his family. It seems he instead has Augusta, who's her their kind of seamstress and servant, read to him, and they have a very special relationship. And she reads to him, and he begins to ponder that men, him, you know in particular, must, that he must learn to live a life without delight if he's going to survive, right? He's going to have to learn to live a life without something, right? So this is his solution to his midlife crisis. Um, the fact that prohibition is mentioned here, it's mentioned a few places in the novel, I think is relevant because that's, of course, also something that the entire country was facing, right? Is how do we, I don't want to say drink is the peel and end all of delight but the question is we must move on as a country without access to something that's given us pleasure in the past right and anyone who's read the books on drinking in america know how much americans like to partake in alcohol prior to um you know especially in the late 19th early 20th century um i think even more in the early 19th century though um, but in the time of prohibition people drank more than they do now that's my understanding um, is essentially he decides he must fa 
he must face the fact that he's going to be emotionless, or he's going to have to he's going to have to lose that spark, that delight. What in the and that whatever Tom Outland gave him, that spark, that kind of revived that, that's going to be gone. He's not going to be able to get it back, right? And I really think that this partially is Willa Cather's condemnation of America as a whole, seeing America as something that its best days are behind it, and it's it's just going to kind of drag on, and it will drag on. It's not going to die. It just continues going on. But that that chapter, that long chapter dwelling on the, the sin and corruption and pettiness and futility of, of Altman's tr trip to, to Washington, just how empty that was and how frustrating that was. That's Cather's vision of America's future when the frontier ends. And, and so the professor's fate is our fate, it seems to be. So at the end of the day, I came into this novel not thinking it would be a novel about the frontier. And at the end of the day, I, I think it is about the frontier. It's just a, a me more metaphorical frontier, right? With a story about the real frontier thrown in. Where the professor, you know, in various stages of his life, you know, went from being an explorer to being stagnant for being, you know, you know, reaching that point where those same delights are, are gone forever and they're not going to be able to come back. So it's, it's a bit depressing at the end, I suppose. But there's a little bit of, a, I guess, a stoicism in the professor's decision at the end to just sort of move on. Quote, he never lived, learned to live without delight, and he would have to learn to, just as in a prohibition country, he's supposed to have to learn to live without sherry. Theoretically, he knew that life was possible, may even be pleasant without joy, without passion and griefs, but it never occurred to him that he might have to live like that. And that's essentially how the novel novel ends. So, um, yeah, that's The Professor's House. Um, a very, very interesting novel. I think it's really worth reading if you haven't. It's a short read. It's only 170 pages or so. So quick read. It's got some really wonderful vignettes in there, especially Tom Olin's story. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. I mean, even if you just read that, it's just a great uh, story of tragedy and failure. Um, but the whole novel, I think, comes together really, really well, especially in the second half. I think the first half, it does, you're not quite sure where it's going yet. You see some of these tensions, but they're all kind of fulfilled at the end in a, in a really brilliant way. Um, and I think the professor's resolution to his midlife crisis is something that, that maybe we can learn from. And I think, you know, so many people who approach those midlife crises with a little less dignity than the professor, you know, perhaps didn't learn that lesson, that, that there is a moment in which certain things in life are over and certain aspects of life are over. And, you know, and that's just that. That's just part of the cycle of life. And I don't know. I, I wonder if people in earlier times were better equipped for, for dealing with that. I mean, even in the Paleolithic or pre-modern times, if people culturally were more better equipped to deal with that. I don't know. But it's, it's uh, a growing problem, I suspect. So anyways, uh, all, to, all in all, a really great novel. I think a lot of wonderful themes about the frontier, about academia, about growing old, about family, about, uh, you know, well, I guess those are the main themes. But there's other, other ones here as well. I, I really like this novel. I, I can't praise it enough. So uh, let me know what you think, though. Uh, let, leave your own comments below about anything I said. Anything I missed, I'm sure I'm wrong about a lot of this, and I missed a lot. And uh, If you have your own opinions about this book, let me know what you think.
uh, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can just uh, leave a question or comments below. Uh, next up, we'll be reading, uh, and it'll be two episodes, reading Death Comes for the Archbishop. This is a novel set in the mid-18th, early mid-18th, 19th century, sorry, early mid-19th century, after the United States acquired, stole, robbed Mexico of, of New Mexico. It's about two Catholic priests uh, coming to terms with with that. So it is very much a novel of the frontier as well. Um, very, very different structurally, though. It's, it's almost like set up like a bunch of interconnected short stories. Um, I, I, it, it's a lot of fun, and, and I'll, give you my th I'll begin to give you my thoughts about it in the next episode. So if you're reading along, pick up Death Comes uh, for the Archbishop. Um, and I'll see you shortly with my thoughts about that novel. Thanks, as always, for listening. Your mother was raised away down in Texas Where the Jensen weed and the Sanders grow We'll feed you up on prickly pear foil And then send you open to old Idaho We'll be tired.